welcome to Blood and Popcorn, coming to you from the great Pacific Northwest in the shadow of Mount St. Helens, not far from the shores of the robust Columbia River. I think it's officially gin o'clock around these parts, which probably makes it, I don't know, is that noon on the East Coast? Anyway, uh, welcome to the first podcast of 2022. No, I did not do an end-of-year roundup in January or December because everyone with a podcast does some kind of year-end roundup or year-end review, and I never want to do an episode just to cross it off a checklist, you know, or to simply keep providing fresh content just for the purposes of having content. I only want to do episodes about things which have some kind of meaning to me. That way, when a new episode drops, you know it has some thought behind it. I've also been occupied uh, with a rewrite on a film project I'm developing with a production company, so that obviously took priority. But the rewrite has been turned in, which means I'm free as a bird. So let's talk about one of my favorite genres, the erotic thriller. Now, I absolutely love a good erotic thriller. And sadly, they are far and few between nowadays, which is why I've been writing... (laughs) writing some, trying to infuse new life into the genre and bring it back. You know, I know there are a couple others in development, uh, one of them being a remake of the 1985 Joe Ezra scripted film Jagged Edge. The original starred Glenn Close and Jeff Bridges and two of my favorite character actors who are no longer with us, uh, Robert Loggia and Peter Coyote, two performers I really, really miss. Now, when you look up erotic thrillers on the internet, you find that the common narrative is that the erotic thriller officially became a genre in the 1980s, often cited as the 1987 film Fatal Attraction being the one which kicked off a slew of erotic thrillers. Now, while the success of Fatal Attraction definitely did cause studios to produce more of them at that time, the origins of the genre actually date back you know, much further. Uh, you could look at the noir films of the 1940s as the foundation for what was to come later. And I always think of... Uh, Raymond Chandler's famous line from his 1940 novel, Farewell, My Lovely. It was a blonde, a blonde to make a bishop kick a hole in a stained glass window. I think that perfectly states and captures the eroticism and sexual tension of the noir films of that era. So what are the elements of an erotic thriller? What, what is the recipe that makes a film an erotic thriller? Well, first, you know, there has to be some sort of, you know, a crime like a murder or, you know, a theft, you know, something, something along with some sort of crime, something illegal. And then there has to be an irresistible femme fatale or a handsome stranger that the protagonist knows this person could be dangerous to be involved with, but their heart and their, you know, other parts of their body, shall we say, cloud their better judgment. There also needs to be a friend or a detective who keeps telling their protagonist something isn't right, advising them against being involved with this person, but they themselves may actually be manipulating them for their own purposes. And the protagonist usually ends up doing something for the femme fatale or handsome stranger that may or may not be illegal and could get them in a hot water if they don't protect them, which is exactly how the fatal love interest planned it all along. So I think the 1944 film Double Indemnity starring Barbara Stanwyck and Fred McMurray is a great example of this. While it's not anywhere near as sexually explicit as the erotic thrillers would eventually become, there's no question that sex is a major factor in the plot. So for the uninitiated, Fred McMurray plays a door-to-door insurance salesman who is duped by a sexy housewife, played by Stanwyck, into a plot to murder her husband for the insurance money. And the title, Double Indemnity, refers to the 
double payout clause in the policy should the death be named an accident. And since men are stupid for attractive women and sex, Fred McMurray does her bidding, thus willingly jumping into the tangled web of lies and murder. Now, when I was a kid, Stanwyck was already doing mom roles. Uh, she was the mother on Big Valley, which was a popular Western television show in the 70s. Um, it also kind of launched Lee Major's career, uh, getting him the hugely successful $6 million man gig. But back in the day, Stanwyck was smoking hot. So this film is definitely an early iteration of the erotic thriller, and the femme fatale would become a staple of that genre, thus adding that sexual energy you know, to the films. Also, a little digression here. In addition to Stanwyck being really alluring back in the day, you ever see old photos of Angela Lansbury? Murder, she wrote? Oh my god, she was stunning. First time I saw her as her younger self was in a really small role in the 1944 film Gaslight. Man, absolutely beautiful. So, anyway, digressing a little bit, but that just, that just occurred to me. Um, so, back on track. In addition to the noir films building the foundation for these erotic thrillers, I think you also have to look at the giallos of the 60s and 70s. Now, these would only play in art houses here in the United States in larger cities like New York, L.A., San Francisco. So they never hit the mainstream at that time. But they do fall into the genre. There's a lot of sexuality. The lover of the main character or would-be lovers are always on the suspect list. And, of course, the intimacy the main character has with them makes them doubt their suspicions. Some great examples would be the 19th 1971 film The Case of the Bloody Iris, which is probably one of my favorite giallos of all time, and Strip Nude for Your Killer, released in 1975. Uh, that one has a lot of sex um, in that one. And ran a pretty complicated uh, murder plot. The Umberto Lenzi films that made he made with Carol Baker, who was absolutely drop-dead stunning, would also fall into this category. Uh, like A Quiet Place to Kill, released in 1970, as well as So Sweet, So Perverse from 1969, which I think borrows from Double Indemnity quite a bit. And So Sweet, So Perverse itself has also been <laughs> borrowed from quite a bit. Now, Oasis of Fear from 1971 is a really interesting one. Uh, while Lindsay didn't cast a Baker, Carol Baker in this film, it's definitely an erotic thriller about a young hippie couple who are living sort of a gypsy lifestyle. And to get by, they sell pornographic photos they make of themselves having sex. And they end up on the run from the law over this. And they take up with this older woman who they kind of take hostage in her own home, sort of like a party hippie home invasion scenario, if you will. And she seems a little bit off, but they begin to have sort of this three-way sexual cat and mouse with her and it becomes pretty clear she's up to something and these two may have set themselves up to take the fall for something she did and it's a really excellent film there's a number of reversals in there that work really well but again these films never hit the u.s mainstream until recently when small label blu-ray curators like blue underground and severin and vinegar syndrome started restoring and releasing them here in the states the umberto Lindsay and carol baker collection from severin is is absolutely fantastic and it's worth the buy so here in the u.s after the film noir genre sort of played itself out the next iteration of the erotic thriller would be amid that second golden age of hollywood also known as the easy riders and raging bulls era as peter biskin calls it in his book of that name uh the 1972 film the stepmother from howard avalis about an architect who kills a man he suspects was having an affair with his wife 
is good. Um, Brian De Palma's 1976 film Obsession. And then there's Looking for Mr. Goodbar from 1977, where Diane Keaton plays a real-life uh, New York school teacher who was murdered while exploring her sexual awakening during the sexual revolution, trying to shed her conservative upbringing. So there are quite a few uh, films poking around the genre at this time, taking advantage of the looser cinema code reflected you know, during this particular social period we were in. But at this point is when you finally sort of slip into the 1980s with films like American Gigolo, where Richard Gere plays a male prostitute who's set up for a murder of a client. Uh, even though it's 1980, it still feels like a 70s film, which makes sense given a majority of its development would have been in the late 70s before it's released. I think they wrapped production in mid-1979, and it's good. It was a commercial hit. It solidifies Gere as a bona fide star, which is significant. Um, on its own because John Travolta was originally cast in this role and it might have prevented his disappearance from films before finally re-emerging in Pulp Fiction in 1994. But it's a success and it nudges the genre along this mainstream arc but it still feels a little safe. Which brings us to Brian De Palma's erotic thriller Giallo crossover Dressed to Kill. Now, this one really caught the attention of the American public because it starred Angie Dickinson in the lead role. Now, she was a very attractive woman with a very appealing shape, and while she had done quite a few films as a supporting player, it would be playing Sergeant Pepper Anderson on the hugely popular show Police Woman that would really center into the stratosphere. So it was the 1970s. She wore a lot of tight pants and tight tops and did a lot of running. So casting her in this film, which was pushing the boundaries of sexuality and cinema, definitely caught the interest of the film-going public, predominantly and obviously the male film-going public. And it would be the first time they would really get an obvious you know, get obvious giallo film tropes in a major U.S. film. So it also caught the attention of the National Organization for Women because of its sexuality and what they perceived to be perpetuating violence against women in film. But regardless of the controversies, the film was a huge hit, both critically and financially. So this was when the post-noir modern erotic thriller really plants its flag in mainstream cinema. But the film is seen as more arty, sort of neo-noir, with Roger Ebert saying the film was more of an exercise in style than narrative, which is a fair take, honestly. So this is why the 1981 film Body Heat is really, really important. Now, this was written and directed by Lawrence Kasdan. Yes, the same Lawrence Kasdan who wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Empire Strikes Back. Body Heat stars Kathleen Turner and William Hurt in what is basically a remake of Double Indemnity. Now, unlike Dress to Kill... Kazdan dials up the sex while at the same time giving us well-written, well-developed characters in a well-constructed plot. It hits all the markers. In fact, the script is one that screenwriting guru Sid Field would reference a lot in his books on screenwriting as an example of a well-executed screenplay. So after Body Heat, you get a few more erotic thrillers, but the boundaries of the sexual explicitness aren't really pushed very much because we're now officially in the 80s and in the grip of a more conservative trend coursing through the country, which affects the kind of mainstream commercial films you're getting during this period. Except for William Friedkin's 1982 film Cruising, starring Al Pacino. Now, this doesn't really get mentioned among erotic thrillers and gets lost among the more successful commercial hits, but it is, in fact, an erotic thriller. 
Al Pacino plays a beat cop who is asked to work undercover in the underground homosexual clubs in New York to catch a killer who was having sex with men and then killing them. The film is quite graphic, and the director's cut released several years ago was even more graphic. Friedkin does not hold back in the slightest with the display of sexual activity between men, and it should be applauded for being the first to really do that. And I don't think it's been done to that degree ever since, to be honest. It's a fantastic film, but while it was a critical hit, American audiences weren't really ready for it. So it wasn't a huge success. So it moves the radar to some degree, but it relies on the creative social construct of the 1970s continuing into the 1980s with this graphic display of homosexual activity. But it didn't happen. I mean, it wasn't released until 1982. This is the E.T. and Raiders of the Lost Ark era, and the tide had turned by then. So it doesn't move the meter as much as it could have if it, if it had been released in, say, 78 or 79. But it's an important erotic thriller nonetheless, and shouldn't be overlooked as having an impact. Just not the impact it could have had. So with Cruising not really landing, it's 1981's Body Heat. I mean, that is pretty much the template, which is used until 1986. When James Dearden adapts his own short film called Diversion into the screenplay, Fatal Attraction. So for those who have never seen it, it's about a married man who has a steamy weekend tryst with a woman he's just met. And when the weekend is over and he thinks they both understand that this was just sexual gratification, scratching that mutual itch, it turns out for her, it meant a lot more. And she began stalking him. It would eventually star Michael Douglas and Glenn Close and be directed by Adrian Lyne, who had a mega hit with Flashdance. And it would be released in 1987 and would become an absolute box office smash. Now, other than you know just being a hit, Fatal Attraction is a very important entry into the erotic thriller lexicon for several reasons. First, the sexuality is dialed up a lot. I mean, it's like animal lust level. Also, the protagonist is a jerk. He cheats on his wife just because the opportunity arises, which goes against the conservative portrayals of protagonists in the 1980s. At this time, our cinematic heroes and thrillers are crisp and they're clean and somehow get caught up in something through no fault of their own. Sort of a revert back to the characters played by Jimmy Stewart in Hitchcock thrillers. I'm sure there are you know some exceptions, but on the mainstream level, this was the standard portrayal. Here, our protagonist goes looking for trouble and finds it. Now, in the original script, which is actually superior to the finished film, it's laid out a lot better that his marriage is in a rut. That spark is gone, and despite his efforts to try and reignite it, his wife is just non-responsive. Not that it's a justification for what he does, but it better explains how he succumbed to the moment and made a bad choice. So it's a really human element. But it sets the stage for the flawed protagonist, one we root for despite his failings, and this is accomplished by Glenn Close's harassment expanding from him to his family, which is crossing the line. So, Fatal Attraction finally moves the on-screen sex meter. It gets us to root for a flawed character, and is a huge, huge hit, and establishes the erotic thriller as box office gold. Which, of course, spawns a slew of imitators. How much is a slew? Well... Between 1987 and 1992, well over a hundred erotic thrillers were made. Now they run the gambit in quality. You know, this is the age where studios realized how much money there was to be made on home video. So for every Sea of Love, which starred Al Pacino and Ellen Barkin, you probably get ten, you know, Richard Grieco type erotic thrillers, which made their way to video shelves in the Cinemax after hours faster than rabbits have sex. But there were so many 
Their box office appeal began to wane, and more and more of them went directly to home video, along with all the new Shannon Tweed films, which, hey, I absolutely love those Shannon Tweed films. <laughs> that's not even a guilty pleasure. I just love Shannon Tweed, so that's not really a knock. Um, but as Hollywood is wont to do, they overplayed their hand in straight-up cash grabs, and the erotic thriller was in need of a reinvention. Enter Joe Esserhaas. A former Rolling Stone writer who became a well-known screenwriter, um, having written the hugely successful Flashdance, he'd worked with Sylvester Stallone, and as I mentioned, he wrote the uh, thriller uh, Jagged Edge in 1985. But in 1991, he writes an original screenplay titled Love Hurts, and it would change everything. What, you never heard of it? That's because during the development process, it was retitled Basic Instinct. And this is when the erotic thriller really takes its next evolutionary step. Ezra Haas's script makes it clear there's to be an aura of sexuality just dripping off the screen. And while the sex scenes, as written, are not elaborately detailed, it's clear he's upping the ante. And once Paul Verhoeven was attached to direct, well... Verhoeven only knows one direction, and that's to go big. So if you look at his past work in Robocop and Total Recall, yeah, Verhoeven was the perfect director to take Ezra Haas' script and push the limits. And here you had absolutely everything in the erotic thriller evolutionary track coming together in one film. You have a deeply flawed, if not unlikable, protagonist. You have the eroticism of sexuality dialed up to 20 The violence is very Verhoeven, especially the uncut version, which I highly recommend. And of course, it was a big hit. And the controversy about the film pushing the limits made it an even bigger hit. So, of course, it spawned a truckload of imitators like Body of Evidence, which starred the material girl herself, Madonna. But what what a lot of the imitators got wrong is they thought the sexual aspect was the appeal. And that seemed to be the focus, forgetting to make sure that the screenplays were really well written, like Fatal Attraction, like Jagged Edge, like Basic Instinct. So a lot of them weren't very good, and there were very few standouts. I mean, hell, not even Ezra Haas himself was able to replicate the success of Basic Instinct with his follow-up, directed by William Friedkin of all people, Jade. It came off like Joe Ezra Haas imitating Joe Ezra Haas. Sometimes films can just be lightning in a bottle. Right filmmakers, right cast, right content, right time. You know, we see it time and again. So while Basic Instinct was revolutionary in the erotic thriller timeline, it also signaled the end of the erotic thriller. Because it took it as far as you could go without getting an X rating. Which is important, because the other element that happens at the same time, which I think brings about the end of the genre, access to internet porn. Right around the time Basic Instinct comes out, internet access is exploding like the home video market in the the 1980s. Now, it wasn't great access, but it was still easy access nonetheless. See, back in the day, before the internet, you had to actually make an effort to find porn. You had to actually leave your basement and go to the store to buy the magazines, or actually come face-to-face with the video store clerk when you plucked down your six bucks to rent On Golden Blonde, or The Devil and Miss Jones. You had to go out of your way. you know, Or you could go to the movie theater and watch a rated R movie. <laughs> you know? So those are your choices. But once the internet hit, you were literally three clicks away from porn. So once that happened, 
who the hell wanted to pay 20 bucks to go see an erotic thriller which shows you some nudity and actors simulating sex when you can see actual people having actual sex mostly for free? Erotic thrillers require you to use your imagination for the graphics, but not so much with porn. So I believe that had a lot to do with the genre not making a serious comeback after the basic instinct imitators flooded the market with lackluster fare. So what's the status of the erotic thriller today? Well, they're mostly safe thrillers made for the Lifetime Network. The sexuality is pretty much non-existent because they're cable, and they're very soap opera, they're melodramatic with template outcomes. I mean, some can be fun, you know, some are well-written and fun, but none of them are on par with their theatrical ancestors. And it's really too bad because the erotic thriller has been with us for decades and make up a lot of my favorite films, especially the Jalos. So is there a way to bring the genre back? Absolutely. All genres need to reassess and reinvent at some point. You see it with horror all the time. But it's important to remember the erotic thrillers which stood out and still do. They weren't just about the sex. They all had well-drawn characters and stories which took audiences to places they hadn't been before or gave us someone to identify with who found themselves caught up in a cobweb due to following the advice from the wrong part of their body. Glenn Close and Jagged Edge, William Hurt and Body Heat, Michael Douglas and Fatal Attraction and Basic Instinct, or revealing a world most of us know nothing about, like the gay clubs in Cruising, or the singles ad dating scene in Sea of Love. And mainly, give audiences what they know one can relate to. Who hasn't fallen for the wrong person? Who hasn't allowed lust and love to lead them down the wrong path? A path you go down willingly, even though you know better. And you ignore all the warning signs because that person excites you in some way or satisfies some emotional need in that moment. Your weaknesses on full display for them to take advantage of. That's all of us, isn't it? Porn doesn't give you that. It doesn't give you a human experience. It actually dehumanizes people. And frankly, it's bad for your brain. So to bring back the erotic thriller, make the stories about people. The relatable human elements. And bring back the erotic in the erotic thriller. Make the imagination better than reality by giving us characters we identify with. And we want to be with, even if we know we shouldn't be.